A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian Welcome and tour guide. everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is part two about Mayor Kahana. We ended off uh, part one in just the last episode about the activities of the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, which he founded in New York in the 1960s. And we're ready to move on to part two to discuss Mayor Kahana, his life, his world, his activities on behalf of Soviet Jewry and the controversies that that entailed and then his move to Israel, which I'll discuss. I just want to point out, again, uh, Always like the tidbits of Jewish history surrounding us in our life and our life today. So today happens to be January twenty seventh, twenty twenty one. So it is International Holocaust Day. So I just wanted to point that really I should be talking about uh, something related to the Holocaust, even though the Holocaust always played a role in in uh, the activities and speeches and anything that uh, Kahana spoke about, but it's not directly related to the Holocaust, but just wanted to mention it. In general, the Holocaust Memorial Days is a good topic. Um, the, the first Holocaust Memorial Day was started during the war, during the war itself, by the Synagogue Council of America, a uh, you know a united of all denominations, a rabbinical body, which is also another another topic. Um, so they, they decided on Nasara Bateves, actually, to be the Holocaust Memorial Day. Later on, the Rabbanut in the State of Israel uh, took on that as well. Later on, the State of Israel, uh, they they made a different day. In 1952, 53, I think, um, the Chav Nisan, during the time, days of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, that's when the Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel, is till today, but later on in the 1990s and then in 2005, a UN resolution, the world took on January 27th as International Holocaust Day, and it's commemorated in the UN, in the US, in Poland, in Germany, in England, in Italy, in Spain, in Portugal, Belgium, Russia, in many, many countries around the world as International Holocaust Day. And the significance of the day, of course, is that on January 27th, 1945, 76 years ago, the Red Army uh, liberated Auschwitz, and being that Auschwitz wa- is, uh, till today, the symbol of the Holocaust, 
So therefore, January 27th was very appropriately um, uh, chosen as that day. That's definitely a lot to talk about in Holocaust memory and, and international and all that, and we'll have to save that for another time. So getting back to Mayor Kahana, so I did get a lot of letters and feedback about part one, very interesting, a lot of additions, uh, definitely a lot of emotions running high, it's a hot topic and also quite contemporary and many people knew him and remember him and I got a lot of uh, emails about uh, um, different listeners describing uh, growing up in the 1960s and 70s and uh, you know knowing about the JDL up close. Quite a few listeners submitted a very funny story that the father of, I mentioned that Mayor Kahana has a brother of Nachman Kahana, who wrote a sefer uh, called the May Menuchais. So they, I got this from several people, I didn't know it was a humorous anecdote, that the father of the Kahana boys would quip that he has two sons, one is the May Menuchais and one is the May Mariva. And uh, his son, Rav Nachman Kahana, who wrote the Sefer May Menuches, and his son, Mayor Kahana, who who's, didn't write the May Mariva, but he stirred up controversy, which is what the, the words essentially mean. Uh, so again, this is, again, I want to emphasize, just like in part one, there's a lot of complexity of the character, of the story, of what's going on in the background, the, I saw it in the feedback that I got. There are those who were, very pro-Mayor Kahana. There are those who are against and they're very strongly against, and it's a bit challenging uh, to stay balanced in the middle and honest to history while not offending anyone, um, including offending history. So that's in general. Uh, parenthetically, that's why I generally prefer older uh, stuff and older stories, but uh, this is already the topic we're on, so there's no turning back the train once it's heading ahead full steam. So we're headed, talking about uh, um, the activities of the JDL and Kahana on behalf of uh, Soviet Jewry, which starts in the 70s. Now, he's not the one who starts uh, act- activism uh, in New York, in the Jewish world of the American Jewish community, uh, on behalf of Soviet Jewry. That, there are already other organizations involved, primarily an organization uh, started by uh, Jacob Birnbaum, um, a a very interesting and prominent uh, personality who started the student struggle for Soviet Jewry, the SSSJ, and uh, that's that's already in the early sixties. He's he's the son. This Birnbaum is the son of the Yiddish linguist Solomon Birnbaum and a grandson of the political activist Nathan Birnbaum, who who went through. He's also a fascinating piece of history, but he. He started off as an early Zionist, a contemporary of a protege of Herzl. Uh, he actually coined the term Zionism, and um, and uh, later on he became a Yiddishist and to Jewish autonomy. And then later on he became a Balchuva and he joined the Agudas Yisrael. A very interesting person. That's a, this, this is his grandson, either way. So the students struggle for Soviet Jewry, and they're the first ones to raise the issue, but it didn't really grab headlines until the JDL took on the cause in 1970, and that was a result of a very sad story of a, an attempted hijacking in Leningrad. And a group of Jews were involved in trying to hijack a plane, and uh, two of them were sentenced to death by the Soviet government for an attempted hijacking. Um, this, so 
the JDL took on the cause during the time of this court case and this whole story was, was in the news, and they became quite uh, violent and brought the issue to the forefront through different rabble-rousing tactics. And, and, uh, and, um, and uh, you know, Kahana believed that, that was the, the only way to do that, the only way to do it, the only way to accomplish it, the only way to, to both wake up the Jewish establishment out of what he perceived as their slumber and passivity, and he said he would, he would speak openly at these uh, his demonstrations. He would speak openly about how if if uh, there had been less passivity of the American Jewish community during the Holocaust, then who knows, maybe more could have been uh, accomplished. Um, so he uh, he even um, there was I don't know, he or or at least the JDL. There was uh, you know even terrorist attacks in the Soviet missions in New York, Washington to raise the awareness of uh, the plight of Soviet Jewry before it was, you know, it was, you know, it had caught the headlines that it did. And, and of course, these type of events did bring the issue to the forefront. Um, he was anti the promotion of Soviet culture. He, he wanted no less, and again, he said this openly, than to wage full war against uh, Soviet-U.S. Uh, relations. He wanted to cause a rupture in that relationship. Um, he he, uh, he made it an issue and a public issue. Um, many thought many from the establishment believed that it was counterproductive, but he said um, this is making it that it's a real issue to 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 do it. It's it's in the headlines now, and and these um, and he said everyone is too timid, um, just like during the time of the Holocaust. We have to galvanize it. There's we have to make we have to harass everyone. We have to. We have to learn from the African-American community. And he observed them closely during the decade prior in the civil rights movement. Um, he, he said we have to learn from them and, take a, and, and, and how to act, you know, make, make activism. Um, he was not advocating violence per se because he recognized that it would be counterproductive and can hurt the movement more. It could be more detrimental to Soviet Jewry than to their enhancement, but rather threats of violence, smoke bombs, blocking traffic, and, and all kinds of, uh, uh, of rabble-rousing means like that. Um, this, of course, led to actual violence, and uh, that's, that's, that was his, essentially his dispute with the, with the mainstream establishment uh, Jewish community, both Orthodox and, and the general uh, establishment Jewish community. Uh, interesting to note, though, that Yosef Mendelevich, one of the more famous refuseniks, his assessment of Kahan and the JDL was actually quite positive. He said no one had heard of us and uh, in, in our plight until the JDL came along. No one thought of us. The refusenik movement was not prominent on the agenda of American Jewry until the JDL came along. So from his perspective, at least, it seemed that uh, it, it had done... And it accomplished a certain measure of uh, of uh, of what it what it had set out to do. It's interesting. The um, Yassi Klein Halevi, who's written some great books, I know I'm more familiar with his Six Day War book, but I saw an excerpt from his memoir uh, autobiography, uh, and where he describes he he was with uh, Birnbaum in. Um, in the uh, students' uh, struggle for Soviet Jewry, and he said he, how he observed the JDL and their methods, which seemed to be working. It was said it was more violent, 
but it it seemed to be working. The, the cameras were out there when uh, when their confrontations with the police and uh, and his speeches were very um, you know very uh, captivating, charismatic, very dynamic, and it really riled up uh, his followers and the and the crowd. The establishment hated it. Um, and he and they said it's not counterproductive. It's not going to work. Now what he said, very interesting. Kahana's response to that was, he said, the goal of the Jewish establishment is to end the hatred, which is unrealistic. He said we have to sometimes you have to end the haters, not the hatred, and it's more realistic to end the haters by any means possible, and all options are open. Essentially, that's what he was saying. Than to end the hatred as as an ideal, um, so in this and, and, and along the way he was trying to instill Jewish pride, and which and interestingly enough that that was actually uh, accomplished with quite a few of the youth of that time uh, brought many young estranged Jews on college campuses back to Jewish identity and, get, and instilling a certain sense of pride. So I don't know if the ends justify the means, but the, the historical reality. It definitely um, uh, reflected uh, a certain uh, instilling of Jewish identity. He also did form an alliance at the time uh, with the Italian mafia, with Joe Colombo. Later on, a certain uh, form of alliance with um, African-American activist organizations as well. And there he made a distinction between the ones who were anti-Semitic, black power, and those as opposed to ones that were uh, you know, uh, fighting for civil rights, which he identified with and uh, was willing to work with anyone. Um, th- during the times that he's arrested, uh, and there was quite often, he was arrested many, many times in both the United States and later on in Israel, so many rabbis would vouch for him even if they disagreed with him because, uh, there was again, there was this complex relationship that he was a force to be reckoned with, that he genuinely cared for and loved the Jewish people and their needs, on the other hand, they, on the other hand they, almost everyone, the establishment, disagreed with his methods and his approach, and uh, therefore there was this uh, strange relationship. Uh, so they would have this, you know, distant relationship, and it somehow vouched for him, and but not, but not to come out in support of his of his ways. While he was in prison once in in uh, in New York, he sued to receive kosher food in prison, which he won. He won that court battle and to be able to receive kosher food, which is an interesting legacy because it's not one of the ones that we usually list off as Ghana's legacy. But uh, unfortunately, there are uh, observant Jews till today in prison who, who, have, uh, who have religious needs and they receive kosher food. And I don't know how many of them recognize that the reason that they're able to receive kosher food till today in prisons in the United States is because of Mayor Kahana and his uh, fight to receive kosher food for uh, Jewish prisoners. Um, he led protests and sit-ins for all sorts of Jewish causes around New York City, a whole myriad of, of Jewish causes, which it's too long to mention. Um, never a dull moment. Uh, and once he took on a cause, so things became a JDL issue, a Jewish matter, and it went way beyond the specific issue at hand. Um, and that's what made him at odds again with the American Jewish community because he would take on the issue and make it a, and make it a national issue. And uh, and the 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 people who he was who he had voluntarily decided to campaign for 
that didn't necessarily always appreciate uh, how he had uh, um, taken on um, the issue and the uh, approaches that he used. But he, what he did was is that he did articulate a coherent ideology, a manifesto, a philosophy. He wrote it all out. He had, again, like I said, like in part one, he had thousands of articles. He wrote endlessly, and he was a prolific speaker. And he attacked many of the American, Jewish, even rabbinical establishment. He later on in the 1980s, more he debated several members of the Jewish establishment. And he, again, he saw it, he understood the power of publicity. So he saw it as a performance. He wasn't just, uh, he looked way beyond the substance of the debate itself to see as a, uh, as a, as a pr- production. Uh, one of his major vehicles of expression, like I mentioned in part one, became the Jewish press. He was later an editor, writer, editor, writer, editor, went back and forth a couple of times. Um, but at the end of the day, he was alone. Uh, no one really from the establishment, especially the Orthodox establishment, was aligned with him. Some protested uh, against him, most of them not so forcefully. So he was like this, you know, certain ambivalence, like I mentioned. Uh, and then, uh, and then um, you know, that later became a point of, of contention when following his, in the years afterwards, during the shaping of his legacy in the 1990s, when there were many organizations who uh, tried to distance themselves from his uh, problematic uh, legacy. He moves to Israel in the 1970s, but he keeps on coming back and forth. Um, but he, very quickly he, he attempts to involve himself in Israeli politics and to enter the Knesset. Um, which which was for a long time unsuccessful, but eventually he got got in in 1984 for one stint in the Knesset. And here's where he made perhaps his both his greatest impact in the long run, for good or for bad. But in a certain sense, this is also the point when it begins to unravel. And this is a very very important and fundamental uh, point which I want to emphasize because it's not. Uh, limited to to relevance uh, by Kahana, but this is a much much broader scope of an issue that really can come up and explain a lot of uh, issues of both the last seventy years and in contemporary Jewish life and probably in the future of Jewish life. Um, is that there's a huge difference, a fundamental difference between fighting as a minority on the streets of New York to being in a Jewish sovereign state creating legislation. And we can essentially call it the jump from agitation to legislation. And, and that's, it's really a huge topic. There's a difference between being a Jewish minority in a foreign country and lobbying or fighting or managing for Jewish rights, for Jewish issues, for the Jewish, commu- Jewish minority community facing a foreign power and as, as, as a small minority community. Whereas the other side of the ocean, which is a new phenomenon that just started a little over 70 years ago, which you know takes time getting used to, that there's a Jewish sovereign state as an absolute majority, but more than just an absolute demographic majority, that's, 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 that's a minor point essentially, but even more importantly, it's with the absolute power of legislation in, 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 in the form of a government. And that and that makes all the difference. Meaning, the the to protest, uh, to get on the street of New York and to protest in in a violent or nonviolent fashion that that's that's less important. Um, 
is one thing. But then to take that and in an official platform to go ahead and and uh, and and try to translate that into a legislation for a you know a sovereign state, a democracy, so it claims to be a democracy. So that that's a that's a whole issue uh, in, in entirely. Uh, so his his presence begins to be felt, and his he has a following. In fact, uh, when uh, when the uh, disengagement from the Sinai after the signing of the Camp David Accords and and uh, the peace treaty with Egypt, which was actually a you know a, a life saving peace treaty for Israel, it wasn't just a, a you know today's peace treaty is a great place to go. If you have more countries to do business with and more countries to go on vacation, but the peace treaty with Egypt actually, you know, removed an existential threat to the state of Israel. So the um, they they was already a settlement in the Sinai called Yamit, and there was some of the settlers were followers of Kahana, and they did not want to leave because they wanted to stay settled in land that had been belonged to the state of Israel. And they threatened to commit suicide, uh, because they didn't want to leave. And they've the uh, authorities who were who were disengaging from the Sinai to give it back to Sadat to to Egypt. They they realized that the only one who could influence them would be Kahana himself, and he was in America at the time. So they quickly flew him back, and they put him when he touches down at the airport in Israel. They put him into a military helicopter to fly him down to Yamit in the Sinai to convince them not to commit suicide and to leave peacefully from Yamit. And, uh, you know, and they'll, uh, so you see, his influence was already understood in this time. It's already 1978, 79. It's several years before he's even in the Knesset. Um, and he has this political party, which he calls Kach. And it has a strong ideology becomes something of a movement a small movement and at the time but it was growing and it had a very uh, uh, you know clear ideology of how it saw it how it wanted the Jewish state to be and it wanted it to follow uh, not to follow democratic principles but rather the uh, Torah principles and and it's the relationship it, it, it believed would have with its non-Jewish citizens, which essentially to make it uh, not possible to be a non-Jewish citizen in this uh, vision of the state. So he tries to get elected several times, but he does not pass the, the electoral threshold um, until 1984, when he gets one seat in the Knesset, and he takes that sole uh, seat. By the way, the the number three seat, had he gone gotten enough votes during that election, would have gone to Baruch Goldstein, which is going to come back to haunt the Kahana legacy at the end of our story. And when he gets into the Knesset, there's a whole controversy about him uh, having to give up his U.S. citizenship. The United States government wanted to strip him of his citizenship because he had sworn an oath of allegiance to a foreign country. But uh, he was able to fight that in court because he said that the oath that he made in the Knesset um, was a modified form of the oath and he didn't really swear allegiance to the state of Israel, so he was able to keep his citizenship for the time being. But later on, the Israeli Knesset passed a law that you cannot hold foreign citizenship if you're a Knesset member in the Israeli government. And so he had to give up his uh, U.S. citizenship at the time, but then he was unable to 
run again for the Knesset four years later, in one of those rare times that there was only elections four years later. Usually there's elections every six months in Israel. And that's why we never dispute election results in this country. We don't need to. If you don't like the election results, there's just going to be another election in another couple of months, and there's nothing to worry about. And by the way, it's not going to change anything. You have the same elections again and the same election results. But that's another story, and that's also way too contemporary. But uh, he has to give up his U.S. citizenship, and he tries to get it back when he leaves the Knesset. So during his time in in the in the Knesset, he attempts unsuccessfully at passing all kinds of legislation uh, to, uh, to, uh, to it, through his vision of creating a Torah state in in uh, in 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 the in what, what what in what he said was if it's a Jewish state of Israel, so then it has to be a Torah state. And has to go according to Torah law, not according to democratic law, and uh, and therefore we need to have laws which essentially had a, a very you know chilling uh, several laws that he proposed on the Knesset floor had a very uh, scary and chilling to the ones who heard it uh, similarity to the Nuremberg laws, as he said, Jews. Uh, can non-Jews cannot be citizens in the state of Israel. Jews cannot legally marry non-Jews, um, which is you know, very good in halachic Judaism, but um, but didn't didn't sound right in the in the in the in the under the democratic principles of you know equal citizenship and all that in the state of Israel. So the in the Knesset there was a boycott of his talks and he was ignored. Um, people would just walk out when he got up to speak. He would call them Hellenists, what he used to call in the United States Irvings, so he would call them Hellenists in Israel, um, adapted to the uh, to the new, uh, new, new geographical surroundings, uh, cultural surroundings, rather. So um, he, he later on, he suggested that they pay, that the state of Israel pay compensation or even use coercion to force non-Jews to leave. Um, which which was a bit of an irony because there was allegations uh, that he had had he himself had had an affair earlier on in his life with a non-Jew and later drove her to suicide. But that is a story that is unsubstantiated, and there are those who dispute that the story even took place. So he envisioned a Jewish state based purely on halacha, not democratic principles, and therefore he was willing to propose very controversial and very extreme uh, uh, views and and uh, and and he wanted to carry it out in practice and therefore the attitude of the of the uh, political establishment the even the religious establishment to, for to a large extent um was antagonistic and again he's he's alone he's he's very much alone and uh, eventually the Knesset passes legislation that makes it illegal for him to to be in the Knesset, they can't run. He appeals it to the Supreme Court, and it's upheld. Um, so he goes back to his lecturing tours in the United States and to debates. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it was on one of these uh, trips that he was assassinated. It was a lecture to Orthodox Jews, and primarily Orthodox Jews in Manhattan, in November 5th, 1990. And he's assassinated by a Arab terrorist uh, El Sai Nusayr, who later was arrested in connection to the uh, 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. 
He had a, a large funeral in Brooklyn, and then later in Yerushalayim, he's buried in Haramanuchis, and uh, later on, Kach is classified as a terrorist organization by both the United States government and Israel. So his legacy is a bit of a mixed uh, legacy. Immediately after his murder, there's an outpouring of grief, because this was someone who, who again, he was in a certain way, he was was recognized that he had loved the Jewish people and cared for them, and was willing to act, be active on their behalf in any, in many areas, and um, and it was and it was known and it was understood. And here he had been killed, killed al kiddush Hashem. He had been killed for being a Jew and killed by a terrorist. So there's that side of it. But later on, things got more complicated, and there were several voices who continued voicing support for Kahana and even his policies. Uh, such as people like Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, who was a bit of his mentor, uh, was the chief rabbi of the state of Israel, um, and a very, very, very prominent, one of the greatest rabbinical authorities in Israel during that time. Uh, but most distanced themselves uh, from him and his policies and his legacy, his ideology. And the decisive factor of that was the Baruch Goldstein story. So Baruch Goldstein is, again, grows up in Brooklyn, goes to Yeshiva of Flatbush, attends Yeshiva University, gets his medical degree from the Einstein School of Medicine, he becomes Dr. Baruch Goldstein, a physician, and he's close with Kahana all the years in the JDL, he moves to Israel, he tries to get married on Har Habayis, on the Temple Mount, unsuccessfully, and later he was in the Kach party, like I said, he was number three on their list, uh, had they gotten enough votes to get into the Knesset, he um, served as a physician in the Israeli army, and he also served on the city council of Kiryat Arba, which is the Jewish settlement uh, near Hebron. And he initiated and built, which exists till today, a memorial park for Kahana. Um, he would walk around with a yellow star that said Yude, like in uh, like the Nazis forced uh, the Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe to wear, and he would say he's a prisoner of a government who's willing to who to, to do Oslo. To, to make peace with the Palestinians. Um, so that, that's, you know, he was very, very uh, expressive in, in, the, uh, in, in, in the various extreme positions that he took. And then Goldstein goes ahead, and the whole infamous story in Marsa Machpela uh, on Purim in 1994, where it was, you know, uh, real terrorism, real Jewish terrorism, real murder, very terrible and tragic story. Civilians... We're praying uh, in a mosque, um, unarmed. Twenty-nine are killed and 125 injured um, by one terrorist, uh, Baruch Goldstein, and he's killed in the process. Um, and and that then it becomes a complicated legacy. And then comes time for a lot of the Jewish establishment in America and in Israel to rethink the uh, the uh, the legacy of Meir Kahana and and uh, and then to try to. You know, to guess where is this heading? What what would he have wanted? And what did and then and then and then it goes down till today, grappling with what is the real legacy and who really speaks in his name and what did he really want? And have events that played out over the years either been in more support of his vision or perhaps justified any distancing from. Uh, from that uh, that way, so that's uh, again a little bit about the complexities of both Kahana, his life, and his legacy. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. 
You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, trips, tours, lectures, and you could subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.